my friends, in a, in a time of Advent, when we look forward to the coming of Christ and celebrating his entrance into this world in the human flesh, <clears throat> we don't often use that time to preach the law. You know that preaching encompasses those two parts, doesn't it? There's the preaching of the law, and there is the preaching of the gospel. Law and gospel. When we preach the law, we preach what you must do. Right? Do this. When we preach the gospel, we preach what was done. I think that's a wonderful way to think about law and gospel. The law is do. The gospel is done. Right? It's what Christ has done in our place and on our behalf. But both have a, a purpose in preaching. We preach the law. We preach the law. Do this. Right? We preach the demands of the law of God. And the law of God has its function in our life of faith. First of all, it shows us our need for a Savior. It cuts us down. It makes us humble. It shows us our sin. This morning we called the law the lab tech. He's the one that comes with the biopsy results. He shows us the cancer of sin that is within us. He exposes it to us so that we see it and that we learn to hate it. But the law also comes to us after we've been to Christ, after we have received the forgiveness of our sins. And our law te- and the law teaches us, <clears throat> takes us by the hand, and shows us how to live. Well, during the time of Advent, we don't often think so practically, do we? we? We rejoice in the salvation that Christ has worked out for us. We rejoice in the, in the mind of Christ that he came down to this earth and humbled himself, even to the death of the cross, to save sinners who, who weren't asking for salvation or for sure who were not seeking it. And yet we see in the Apostle Paul that the Apostle Paul does turn to the whole idea of Advent and Christ coming into this world. And he turns it to a practical, uh, a practical uh, point, as it were. And we see that in the chapter that we have before us this evening. Because Paul there says, when he's talking about humility, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, there you have the Apostle Paul talking about Christ and his humiliation, which we celebrate this time of the year, and yet turning it to a practical purpose. And so this evening I will preach the law. I'm going to preach something that we should do, specifically a point of character that we should cultivate in our life of faith, not in order to earn God's favor, we know that, right? But because we've been saved by God. In fact, I, I put this sermon side by side with this morning's sermon. We sat at God's table. We received his privileges, his favors, right? We had a place there, and that's a miracle of God's grace. Now, my friends, how can we show our gratitude to God for the place that he gave us there? Well, this is one way. But also, as we think about Advent, as we think about Christ's humiliation, let's follow Paul's line of thinking, and see how we can have in us the same attitude, the same mind that was in our Savior, Christ Jesus. Well then, let's turn to Philippians. The first thing we notice about, the first thing we know about Philippians, my friends, is that this is a prison epistle, a prison letter. In other words, it is a letter that Paul wrote from prison. There are four prison letters in the Bible. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. 
So if you take those four that we were struggling to keep the order straight, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Not Galatians, but the last three, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, those are all letters Paul wrote from prison. And what's the fourth one? Right? Only one chapter at the very end of the Bible? Philemon. Right? Paul was in prison, and he, he, he uh, wrote the letter uh, to Philemon about Onesimus. So we have four prison letters. And that's important this evening to understand because my first point is Paul's suffering. Paul's suffering. Now, Paul is in prison uh, when he writes the, the letter to Philippi. But we know from these uh, letters that Paul was quite certain he was going to be set free from prison. That's why we call this the first imprisonment. Uh, in fact, when you read the book of Philemon, uh, the letter, we should call it a letter, that's what it was, right? Uh, when we read Paul's letter to Philemon, we know that Paul says, uh, make a room ready for me, because I'm going to be let out of prison here real quick. He, he was in expectation that he was going to be released, and he was released. In fact, the other letters that we have from Paul, Timothy and Titus, those letters were written after he was released from prison. In fact, yeah, just to give you the historical situation here, if you compare what we read in, in the book of Philippians and in, the, in Paul's letter to Philemon, Compare that with 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison for the second time. He was re-arrested. And now his, his attitude is very different. Now he knows his days are numbered. A different emperor has come to the throne, Nero. And remember that Nero blamed, he liked to blame Christians for things that were happening badly. Things that were going badly in the, in the empire. He blamed the Christians, the great fire of Rome, Right? And so the attitude towards Christians in Rome had greatly changed when Paul was rearrested and put in prison the second time. But in the first imprisonment, uh, we read that at the very end of Acts, it was hardly an imprisonment. In fact, it more like a house arrest, really, than anything else. And, and Paul was confident that he was going to be released, and he was released. And he went on to do ministry in Crete and various other places in Asia Minor. At any rate... This is Paul's suffering. He still is in prison. He still cannot do what he feels God has called him to do. And so he is suffering. And we read something of that at the end of chapter 1. If you look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. In Philippians 1 and 29 we read, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, that is to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. In other words, you've heard that I'm in prison and I'm suffering here in prison. Granted, his, the suffering that he experienced in his first imprisonment was nothing like what he experienced in his second imprisonment, but still it was suffering for Paul to be locked down in that house, to be under the palace, to be under the guard of these soldiers who would not let him leave that house. And so when we come to verse 1 of chapter 2, now we have Paul asking these questions, right? These are rhetorical questions. In other words, they're not really questions, right? They're really statements. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, of course, there is encouragement in Christ, right? That's what he's saying. There is encouragement in Christ. We should encourage each other based upon our union with Christ. If there is any consolation of love, well, what do we learn from Jesus' example and his commands to be loving. Well, that is to console one another, to encourage one another, 
That's what Paul is saying. If there is any consolation that comes from the fact that we love one another. Let me paraphrase it that way. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, or if there is any fellowship that the Holy Spirit binds us together, if there's any fellowship that we have together as a body of Christ, being joined together by the Holy Spirit of God, if there's any fellowship like that, if there's any affection and compassion between us, and again, all these are rhetorical questions, aren't they? Of course, there is this affection. There is this compassion that we have. And that's why you have shown that compassion to me. And so Paul is, is both thanking them for the compassion that they've given to him, but also encouraging them to continue it. And Paul says, as I suffer in this Roman prison, as I suffer here under confinement, I cannot do the things that God has called me to do. And no doubt that greatly irritated Paul. You know that Paul was a man of fierce ambition. And yet he was locked down in this house. Granted, he wasn't suffering so much physically, right? He wasn't that he was being beaten or that he... In 2 Timothy, he's locked in a cell, right? In an old dungeon. He's cold, right? He wants Timothy to bring him his his coat, he even says in 2 Timothy. On Philippians, he's not suffering so much physically, but no doubt he's suffering intensely from, from from being walled in and he can't do what he feels God has called him to do. And so he looks to the Philippian church for encouragement, for sympathy. And that's why he's asking these questions. And of course, they're not really questions, are they? Their statements. And then Paul says, my cup of joy. Verse 5. How can Paul have his joy filled? Make my joy complete, he says at the beginning of verse 2. Make my joy complete. And how does, he, how does he want them to do that? Well, he gives some practical directives, and I'm going to come back to that. But I want to first focus on Paul's main thrust here, his main point. Not how he works it out practically. Again, I'm going to come back to that. But in verse 5, he says this. This is how you make Paul's joy complete. Verse 5, have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is my second point. Paul wants the Philippians to show, to, to encourage him, to console him in his sufferings in prison. Here's how you can make me happy. Here's how you can give me joy. Have the same mind that Christ had. Now, what was that mind? Well, that is humility, right? And that is the title of the sermon this evening. And that's that point of character, right, that I want to focus on with you this evening. Humility, what is it and how do we get it? Well, Paul, of course, as he always does, right, he always looks to Christ. He always finds this uh, exemplified for us in Jesus Christ. And he turns to Christ. Now, Paul finds that Christ is the great example. You know, sometimes we can uh, be a little bit uh, afraid of looking to Christ as an example for us because we know that in in more liberal churches, that's all they do, right? That's all they do. They they see Christ as a wonderful example of humility and of kindness and of of seeking to to help the hurting and and healing and and all these things that Jesus does. Well, let's be careful with that congregation. Uh, That's certainly wrong, right? Uh, the, the, the number one thing we see in Christ is our Redeemer. He redeems us from sin. He's atonement for our sins. That's the most important thing. And Paul certainly teaches that. But Paul's also not afraid to look at Christ as our example. So let's do that also this evening. Let's not, let's not uh, as it were, uh, shirk this, this uh, example that Christ gives us 
because of the abuse that it often comes to at the hands in, in other, in other uh, Christian churches. So, have this attitude. So, Paul's joy is that the Philippians be humble. We come now to that third point, the great exemplar, the path of humiliation. And this is Advent, isn't it? Because now Paul looks at the coming of Christ in the flesh, and in verse 6, he begins uh, a, a he, he, he begins this descent, I'm going to call it. You can look at these steps right here, right? Everybody can see these steps. In fact, there's four of them, and that's what we have here. Four steps, right? One, down to the next, down to the next, until we get to the very lowest step. And that's really what we have. Christ descent into humiliation, because that's what Paul does. He starts with, in verse 6, this is the first one, who, although he existed in the form of God, which is basically just a way of saying he was God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be held onto. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, that is, a slave. So here's the first point then of Jesus' humiliation. He was God, right? And there's the mystery of the Trinity represented for us. But Jesus did not regard that as something to be held on to. But he laid that aside. Now, my friends, we're not saying that Jesus stopped being God. No, that's not correct at all. But he laid aside his glory that he had as being equal with God. And he humbled himself and came down. He took on a human body and he became human. He emptied himself of his divine glory. He did not empty himself of his deity. Don't think that. That's not right. He did not empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his glory that he had as being equal with God. He didn't hang on to that. He didn't hold on to it. You see, my friends, there was something higher. There was something better that he was looking forward to. He was on a mission from God, right, to save God's elect people. So in the first place, he emptied himself of his glory. That's that first step down. But in the second place, we see that he took the form of a bondservant or of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. This is the second step, right? He emptied himself of his divine glory. He came down and became human. Made in the likeness of men. That's just saying he became human. Now the third step. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So my friends, not only did he become human, but he even entered into death. He entered into the sufferings and into the unpleasantness of death itself. The humiliation of death. It's one thing to be human, right? And that's why I I represent this as a descent, right? He left his divine glory He became human. He even died. He even took upon himself the humiliation of death. And now we have to go one step lower. One step lower. Because we we read in verse 8, the very end of verse 8, even death on a cross. Not only did he experience death, my friends, but he experienced a certain kind of death. Death on a cross. He was nailed naked to a wooden cross. 
and lifted up for the scorn and the reproach of everybody who passed by. Now, my friends, that in itself, I don't think we have to imagine much, is an awful shame. Right? To be, to be, to be naked is one thing, but to be, to be naked on a cross, lifted up for everybody to see, and to be dying there, to be, to be passing through the process of death, visible for everybody to see. Well, my friends, in the, in the ancient, or in the, in the Greco-Roman world of that time, there was nothing so shameful as crucifixion. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to represent this. Well, you, you, you know that it was against the law in those times for a Roman to be crucified. Why? Because it was too shameful. It was too low for a Roman. Only slaves and, and, and uh, criminals of the lowest kind were crucified. It was the highest degree of shame that you ever could take on in the Roman world. To have your death publicly displayed, naked, hanging on a cross, was the greatest shame that a person could ever experience. And that is where Jesus went, my friends. He became human. He died on a cross by crucifixion. And this is what Paul points to now. This was the attitude, my friends. This was the mind of Christ. That he did all this. He did those four steps of humiliation in order to save men. And when Paul looks at that, he says, let that mind be in you. You want to make me happy? Is there any encouragement that we have as Christians? Any fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit? Are we a church family here? Maybe to put it in more contemporary language. Are we a church family? Do we love each other here? Do we have any care, concern? Well then, says Paul, make me happy. Make my joy complete by having this mind in you, which was first in Christ Jesus. Now you say, that's a tall, tall standard there, Paul. It certainly is. It's an impossible standard. And yet it's something for us to aim at, my friends. And so in these in these Advent months, when we think about the humiliation of our Savior, we turn to ourselves tonight. And we think, how can we have this mind, which was first in Christ? How can we make Paul's joy complete? Well, we don't have Paul to answer to today, do we? But you can be sure, my friends, that humility is a mark of Christian character that brings glory to God. And that's what I'd like to close then the sermon is to think about these by way of application. Now, my friends, here I have to say that as your pastor, I feel no special expertise in this area. In fact, that's almost a little humorous that I would stand here to teach you about humility. I used to love to go into my mother's kitchen and to say, Mom, I am the most humble person that ever was. And my mom had a way of of lifting her eyebrows. She didn't have to say anything. She would just be like, look at me with this kind of quizzical look. And we would both chuckle and have a good laugh about that. But that is such a, a unique thing about humility, isn't it, my friends? That it is a very slippery thing. That's what I put on my, on my outline here, a slippery thing. As soon as you have it, or as soon as you think you have it, you've lost it. It's, it's such a hard thing to get a hold of. 
You know, the word humility comes from the word Latin word hummus, right? Which is the word for dirt. And so the, the very concept of humility is that we think low of ourselves. Well, therein lies the problem, right? Because as soon as we think, well, I, I'm, I'm quite, I think quite lowly of myself. And already, right, it's already mixed with pride, isn't it? So that sometimes, my friends, when we do the most humble kind of things, like confessing our sins or, or repenting, there's pride mixed with even that, isn't there? And so it's such a slippery thing to get a hold of. An impossible thing, in one sense, to get a hold of. And yet Paul says, let this attitude, let this mind be in you. And so, my friends, even as we, even as we think, and again, I think it's even a little humorous of, of how difficult a thing it is to get a hold of, humility. Let us resolve then to, to have this as a takeaway from this, that it's never something that we can stop working on. It's never something that we can say, okay, I've arrived. But humility of character is something that we always have to strive for. And in all our dealings with our fellow men and women, our colleagues at work, our church family, right? In, in all the interactions we have with each other as husband, as wife. This is something that we can never lay aside and think, okay, now I can look at something, I can focus on something else. Humility has to be a lifelong work as we work on ourselves, as we work to fix ourselves. So that in the first place, my friends, humility is such a difficult thing. We never can stop working. And I do not stand before you as a person with any kind of special expertise on this issue. Any one of you could stand up here now, I'm sure, especially the older members amongst us, and, and teach us things to think about as we try to be humble. But at any rate, what I want to do this evening then, friends, is to stick very close to the text of Scripture. And this is where I want to turn back then to those practical directives that the Apostle gave us at the beginning of this chapter. So I don't want to come up with my own ideas about humility. I mean, I could do that, right? But let's look exactly what the Apostle Paul says here. And let's go back then to verse 2. So I'm in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. And this is what I noticed in the first thing in chapter 2. Look at these words. Make my joy complete, says Paul, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. My friends, did you see those words there? Same, same, united, one. Let me read the verse again. Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, you can't miss it, can you? That one part of real God-honoring humility, my friends, is to aim at unity. Now, again, I, I, don't, I don't bring my own ideas here. That's the beauty of this, right? Is that I can stand before you with the word of God. And I can say to you now, that one sign of a humble person is that they are focused on unity and unifying. Same, same, united, one. You cannot miss that this is a focus of a humble person and that Paul intends that as you seek to have this mind in you, which was first in Christ, is that you have a focus on unity. Now, my friends, 
Unity does not mean that we all agree. That is impossible. And no, it was no more possible in Paul's day than it is in our day. I now look at a, a, a vast variety of opinions, my friends, that are represented in the faces looking back at me now. Right? We all have differences of opinion on practical matters, on doctrinal matters, on the specific interpretation of specific passages of Scripture, right? On the best way forward for the church in this area or in that area. We all have these differences of opinion. But my friends, Paul says if you're going to have the attitude of Christ, then you're going to seek for same, same, united one, right? You are going to aim for a unifying principle there. That even in spite of our differences, we're going to find a way to work together. That may mean that your idea for doing something gets laid aside and that the idea of someone else is realized and and chosen and we go forward in that kind of unity. But the humble person is big enough to accept that, isn't he? And isn't she? Difficult? But what Paul tells us is that we should aim for this sameness for this unity. And so I ask you, my friends, and again, I I was speaking with some brothers before, nobody leaves church tonight feeling better about themselves. This is a difficult topic, all right? This is a difficult topic. But I think this is is useful for us, isn't it? But think about this. In all your interactions, and in your actions, in your interactions at work, right, when you have to have one of those difficult conversations, when you have to confront somebody about a difficult issue, Is your aim in that confrontation, in that conversation that you have to have, is your aim to to win a victory, to score as it were, right? To, To be able to lord it over him? Or is it this kind of unity? Is it to bring one another together? Is it to say, you know, I understand that we're going to have these differences of opinion, but can we agree on this? And can we move forward that way? Now, sometimes you can't have the unity. Sometimes it's going to break. But my friends, Jesus had this purpose in his mind. And we have to have this purpose in our minds to seek, to aim at that unity. Be honest and upfront about your disagreement. These are the areas where we disagree. You know, again, when I think about the meeting that I mentioned this morning about the NAPARC meeting, it's beautiful to me that all these denominations come together. Over here, we have a denomination that only sings the psalms in their worship. Over here we have a a denomination that insists on using the King James Version or some other version of the Bible in their worship services. Over here we have a church that is really focused on this or really focused on that. Here we have a church, right, that that believes that we should... uh, And you know, there's so many differences, right? We've mentioned many of them here. And yet what a beautiful, Christ-honoring thing it is, my friends, to see them all coming together. To say, look, we're united on the basis of these three forms of, what do we call them again? Three forms of unity. Well, my friends, let this attitude be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. To seek for unity, even in our disagreements, even in our conversations where we have to resolve something. When we have conflict, is that our aim? You know, Jesus said the Gentiles seek to lord it over one another. They're seeking to win. 
Although, isn't it interesting, my friends, that increasingly in the literature on leadership, even in secular culture, they are increasingly taking the same stance that Jesus taught us, right? Because Jesus said, the one who leads should seek to be your servant. We have that term, servant leadership, which is now even becoming popular in secular societies. I mean, if you go to a conference on leadership, right, they'll, they'll talk about these things. Jesus said, however, right, the Gentiles seek to lord it over one another. The Romans were obsessed with power. They loved power. They sought to lord it over one another. Let it not once be named among you, says Paul. And that's what he says here. Be of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Well, I move on then to the sign, the second sign, which is recognition. Recognition. Because the apostle goes on, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And my friends, this is, this is often a, a, a bitter pill for us to swallow when we fail to receive the recognition that we believe we deserve. That's, that's painful, isn't it? Now let me qualify this by saying to those who are in leadership how important it is that we do recognize people, that we do thank people for the services that they provide, both in the church and our businesses, our wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Of course, that needs to be a part of our daily conversation, right? To recognize people, to thank them, to show a spirit of gratitude to them. But now I'm talking about those who are on the receiving end, right? Because Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, right? And that is, do nothing from selfishness. In other words, seeking recognition for myself or empty conceit, right? The conceit there is this pride. And especially, my friends, the word that Paul uses here is interesting because it's kind of the word that was used in the Roman times for politicking, campaigning for office, Well, campaigning for office is is by definition looking for recognition, right? Empty conceit. Uh, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And I put these quotes on here from Thomas Shepard. He was a a New England Puritan back in in the 1600s. A Pharisee's trumpet shall be heard to the town's end when simplicity, or the humble person, walks through the town unseen. Unseen and unnoticed. Right? And of course, he's using the, the, the example that Jesus himself gave us, right? That the Pharisees would sound a trumpet when they were about to give their alms. They wanted people to see. They wanted recognition. They wanted to be lifted up in the esteem and in the eyes of people. A Pharisee's trumpet shall be heard to the town's end. Everybody hears it. Everybody sees it. But simplicity... The truly God-honoring person slips through the town unnoticed, unseen, unrecognized. And he's okay with that. He can live with that. Now that takes a special degree of strength, isn't it? I think humility and strength go together. Jeremy Taylor was, a, was an old, even older than Thomas Shepard. He writes, love to be concealed and little esteemed. Be content to want and want here doesn't mean to desire, it means to lack. Be content to lack praise, never being troubled when thou art slighted and undervalued. For thou canst not undervalue thyself. And if thou thinkest so meanly as there is reason, 
No contempt will seem unreasonable. Therefore, it will be very tolerable. Jeremy Taylor basically saying you can't undervalue yourself too much. Well, obviously that can be taken too far, right? But he's making the basic point that if we saw ourselves for what we really were, humility would be easy to come by. And one more thing about recognition, my friends, is don't forget that Jesus said that somebody who gives a cup of cold water to somebody in my name will not lose his reward. And that too is a humbling thing, my friends, to know that even when we do our good works, we don't do them to be seen of men. Then we're just a Pharisee. But God sees. And God has made a solemn promise, my friends, that he will never revoke, that he will recognize. He will give a reward to those who serve him selflessly in this world. And so even though people may forget, right? And in that sense, now we can be content to be unrecognized because we know God remembers and he never forgets. And Jesus says he will not lose his reward, even such a a small thing as just giving a drink of water. I go on to my third sign, self-absorbed. Look out for the interests of others, says Paul. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, my friends, uh, I would like to apply this especially to our speech. And this could go in so many different areas, right? But especially in our areas of conversation, in the conversations that we have, when we talk to each other, How does humility manifest itself when we talk to each other? Well, I love that uh, saying from Richard Baxter. You have two ears and one tongue. Hear twice and speak once. You see, my friends, if we're going to regard the interests of others, we have to know what their interests are. We have to know what their situation is. And so often, my friends, when we talk, we we, we might say something and then... uh, Somebody else will say something, and right away we we return to talking about ourselves again. Now, I mean, when we have pleasant small talk back and forth, of course we're going to do that. But if we're really going to do what the Apostle is calling us to do here, if we're going to have the same attitude in us that was in Christ, then we have to be willing to listen. And my friends, we have to be willing to listen to understand You know, I believe that interrupting each other is a speech sin. Because when we interrupt other people, and I know it happens inadvertently, it happens all the time, right? It happens in every day. But if, if we are a person given to interrupting, what we are really saying is, I am so wise, and what I have to say is so much better than what you're saying. Would you please be quiet so that I can now say what I'm going to say? That's not a very humble way to speak, is it? That's certainly not the mind that was in Christ. And so, my friends, if we're going to look out for the interests of others, we have to listen. We have to listen to them. And we have to listen to them with the intent to understand what their situation is. That takes humility. That takes humility to do it. Well, my friends, I I hasten to my last point. How to get humility. Well, that makes it sound so easy, right? Like if you just do this, uh, you know, these four steps, you'll get humility or well, it's never that easy, right? We, we talked about that in the first place, that it's a difficult thing. And we always have to be at work on this. And just the few points that I mentioned this evening, my friends, they could be multiplied, right, 
almost infinitely the different things that we, how we manifest humility in our life. But how to get humility? I couldn't help but look at verse 10 in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, at verse 10, because my friends, I really believe that true humility begins here. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, what happens when we bow the knee before Jesus? When we confess that we are lost in ourselves and we bow the knee before him and we say that Jesus Christ, or we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, we become a slave. Right? We talked about that in a sermon here recently. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. And that means to become a slave. Well, what a great way to get humility, my friends. To confess that you're a slave. That I am simply a slave of my master, Jesus Christ. You see, the slave is the one who does not pursue his own interests. He pursues the interests of his master. And he pursues the interests of those who love his master. He does not seek his own things. Is this all those things that we just talked about? This is what a slave does. He pursues the interests of his master. And in pursuing those interests... He pursues the interest of those. Remember what Jesus said, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. There's where humility begins, my friends. Bowing the knee before Jesus Christ and confessing that he is Lord. Isn't that something of what took place also this morning, my friends, when we reflect on the Lord's Supper? That God gave us a place at his table. But even in sitting at that table, we confess, don't we, that we deserve different. In this Advent season, right, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ humbling himself, if we confess that he is Lord, then we confess that we are his slaves and we follow him. And remember what we talked about last week? That we're just an old, dead stump. That's as high as we can come. Well, That's where true humility begins. And so I pray, my friends, that we would be able to make this a a work, a lifelong work of seeking to honor God by living humbly before him and living in humility with each other as well. May God grant that for each one of us, for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you in this evening hour. So thankful, Lord, that you give us this example but also, Lord, so so dependent and feeling, Lord, just how dependent we are on you to teach us what it means to be humble, to give us, O oh God, to bow before you again and again, week after week, month after month, year after year. Lord, we never get beyond this, to bow the knee before you and to say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and I am his slave. Lord, help us to learn humility from Christ, Help us to learn humility from bowing the knee before you, confessing our own unworthiness and confessing your great glory and worthiness. Lord, I pray that as we struggle through our lives to work on these things, that you would strengthen us by your spirit, that you would give us to find some success in this matter, and that this congregation, Lord, would be marked by those who humbly seek to follow our Lord, to turn away from our own interests and to seek the interests of others. That this congregation, Lord, would be marked by those who listen to each other, who love each other, and who seek 
the interest of each other, even above our own interests. Lord, will you bless us then and remember us in your mercy. Give us a good evening of fellowship together. Bless the youth also as we meet this evening. I pray, Lord, Lord, that your hand would be upon us for good and that all these things would redound to your honor and glory from this time forth and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's turn to number 276 in the blue hymnal. 276 in the blue hymnal, not haughty is my heart, not lofty is my pride. I do not seek to know the things God's wisdom has denied. We'll sing the three verses of 276, and then we'll sing the doxology. It's printed in your bulletin. It's also Psalter hymnal in the same book, number 488. But now we'll sing the three verses of number 276.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.